1: so everyone can go home on time there's granger offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need plus you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you call clickgranger.com or just stop by granger for the ones who get it done today's podcast is sponsored by the morning navigator a daily newsletter written by Tony Greer, who is a 30-year veteran trader in the financial markets. Now, you know that I would not accept a sponsorship from something that I couldn't endorse. I think it's really important to be responsible with your personal finances and investments, and to do that, you need to understand the financial markets. This is where The Morning Navigator fills a specific need for me. If you're trying to find actionable trade ideas or simply educate yourself about the markets, then The Morning Navigator will help you do both. Tony's hit ratio for filling me in on things I should know about is extremely high. The Morning Navigator makes complicated finance topics easy to understand, even if you're a beginner. You can sign up for a free trial right now at TGMacro.com. Now the newsletter subscription normally costs $60 a month or $650 per year, but my listeners can get $100 off an annual subscription by using the code ZUBY at checkout. That is the discount code ZUBY, Z-U-B-Y, at checkout. You can sign up for a free trial today once again at tgmacro.com. Go check it out. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick in a destined for fame. Do for the fan, not for the grand, stuntin' it bestin' for pain. I do not front, I do not scam. Put some respect on my name. Sick like a bang, clickin' a bang. Y'all gonna remember the name. Y'all gonna remember the name. What's up ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the real talk with Zoobi podcast. On today's episode, we have got on Cynthia Thurlow, who is a nurse practitioner, a nutrition expert, and she is also a two times TEDx speaker. So welcome to the show, Cynthia. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing great. My kids just went back to school for the first time in two weeks. So I'm I'm having a really good morning.
1: Awesome. And uh how is your 2020 kicking off?
0: Amazing. You know, there's all there's so many, I think it's all about mindset, but I, I rolled into 2020 saying, you know, 2019 kicked my behind, you know, backwards and forwards. Uh, But yeah, 2020 is starting off on the right, um, absolutely on the right foot.
1: Awesome. So I've done a really brief intro of some of your accolades right there, but why don't you tell the audience a little bit more about who you are?
0: Yeah. So I worked uh, as a Western medicine trained nurse practitioner for 16 years in cardiology. And when I became a parent, which is now a long time ago, Uh, My youngest, or actually now my oldest child, uh, developed life-threatening food allergies. And that really got me interested in kind of looking at how food influences our health. You know, most traditionally Western medicine trained providers really don't think about the connections between food and our health. And so... For me, it was really deep diving into you know, the processed food industry, really looking at the way our foods are prepared, how they come to our supermarkets or our grocery stores. And so you know, that then led to being more interested in the impact of food on our health than writing prescriptions. And so almost five years ago, I left clinical medicine to uh, become an entrepreneur, and I wasn't entirely sure at the beginning what that really would look like. And so that has evolved into... Um, you know, being, you know, seen now as a as a you know, health expert within, you know, kind of the nutrition realm. And I still, you know, I still have my hands in, in Western medicine. And obviously now I've got this functional training as well. But for me, it, it's really evolved into um, looking at health and wellness very differently than I did when I was in my training many years ago. And, and so there's still obviously a place for Western medicine. I'm not at all um, identifying that that 's not the case, but I just think when we 're looking at prevent prevention and we 're looking at overall health and wellness, the food that we have on our fork is far more important and impactful than we have given it the credit for previously, and so it evolved into that, and then um, you know from there, you know becoming an entrepreneur, which was obviously a departure that i didn 't entirely expect, kind of evolved into you know i 'm an introvert and I like to challenge myself and so know in 2018 i decided that the scariest thing i could think to do that was within a self kind of realm was to do a a ted talk and so Mm -hmm. i executed my first one in toronto in december of 2018 and then right around the same time i got a second one and then in between those two events um, i went on vacation with my husband and came back and was gravely ill i almost died um, last february and I still decided to do that second Ted talk. And, and the beauty of all of that is, is from there, my life has gotten very, very rich. I think mm-hmm. when you know, you get to a point where um, you know, your health is really on the line and, and you've taken it for granted, as I think most people do, until they get sick or until someone they love gets very, very sick, even healthcare providers, we take a lot of that for granted. So what's evolved from that is just a deeper appreciation, much more spiritual connection, um, not only for myself, but with you know the world and and the impact that I want to make, um, as I continue to be very very grateful that I am still here walking mm-hmm. the earth. And then you know a really deep and profound connection. I have two boys and I have two dogs who are being quiet right now, which for which I am very, excuse me, very very grateful. Um, but yeah, that's that's the space I exist in. I like to talk about food. I like to talk about the impact of food on people's health and wellness. And I love that you know, a lot of my traditionally Western medicine trained peers, you know, love to refer to me. And I love, I always mm-hmm. say, I'll happy to bounce people back. If you need, if they need a prescription, I'm happy to send them back to you. Um, But I really want to just focus on the food. It all starts with food.
1: Gotcha. So when you say Western medicine, do you just mm-hmm. mean what most people would call medicine? Correct. Correct. Okay. So okay. yeah.
0: So, you know, you go to your doctor, you've got a cough. Mm you know, they'd ascertain, what do you need? Do you need an antibiotic? Do you need cough suppressants, cough expectorants, those kinds of things. But yes, what we traditionally think of.
1: Okay. So like non sort of Chinese medicine or pathic stuff kind of thing. Okay. I get you. I get you. And um, so tell us a little bit more about the story of what happened last year. I mean, what, what happened? You said that you, you got very ill, you, you almost died. I mean, what, what specifically happened there?
0: Yeah. So I, we got back from um I, I accompanied my husband on a business trip, got home and, you know, developed what I would liken to say, you know, pain worse than labor. So I clearly knew something was very, very wrong uh, because I would never go to the emergency room unless I felt like I was dying. And so I showed up and and initially because I didn't look all that bad, I don't think they took me very seriously, but when they got lab work back and then they ordered a stat, cat scan, they realized that my appendix had ruptured. And mm-hmm. so when that happens, um, you, you can create a constellation of complications. And so at the time that evening, they actually couldn't take me to surgery. I was too sick. The entire length of my colon was inflamed. And they said, if we go in for surgery, they're going to take your entire colon. And I said, no, no, I need that. Mm. Um, and so I was hospitalized and you know, crossing our fingers. I got septic, uh, which means I got blood, a blood infection. On top of that, I got a small bowel obstruction, which means, you know, it was like my, the domino effect. My body was ensuring I wasn't consuming any foods. I then developed abscesses in my abdomen, which meant I had to have a special drain. I mean, I was in the hospital for two weeks Mm. and there was definitely a day when the surgeon who had known me for many years came in and, and- Here's, here's a tip. Most surgeons have no interest in coming in to see their patients multiple times a day. If you see your surgeon multiple times a day as a patient, you're pretty sick. And so it was the third time she had been in to see me. And she mentioned, she said, I just don't know why you're not getting better. I'm genuinely concerned. And there was absolutely a moment that same day. Uh, where I was very despondent and very depressed, which is not my personality at all. And understandably, no one wants to be in the hospital. So it's not surprising you would, you would get this situational depression and, and feel, you know, really kind of sad and bad for yourself. And I felt a tremendous spiritual presence that was giving me the option of, you know, you're either, you're, this could go one of two ways and what's your choice. And very clearly, you know, I'm a parent and I, I felt like my boys are way too young to, to not have a mom. And so it was a very conscious effort that if I was going to survive this hospitalization and survive being so sick and being so ill, that I was going to make the most of everything I did. And and it was this also this awareness of I'm not fearing anything anymore. You know I think all of us, even confident, strong, self assured individuals like ourselves, um, definitely have things that you may not you know gravitate towards, you may fear, you may not look forward to. And, you know, from that hospitalization and that recovery and going on to do that second talk, I fear nothing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I tell people that Mm -hmm. all the time that I just really want to live my life fearlessly. Whereas before I probably played it a little safe, you know, it's the typical, you know, I did everything my parents expected me to do. And, you know, the last few years have been veering off course from what was expected, doing something that's different. But now I truly want to live my life differently than I did before, um, and to not be afraid to take chances and to not be afraid to do things that maybe wouldn't work for someone else. Mm. Um, but really, you know, demonstrating for my children that your mindset is absolutely everything. I and mean, that's what got me on that stage. Cause I was still pretty sick when I did yeah. that talk. So
1: yeah, no, that that's super powerful. I mean, being aware of one's own mortality, mm-hmm. whatever causes that there's not really any bigger motivator than that. Yeah. Um, I, it's something that like I, I tell people often I mean it might sound a little bit morbid but I'm one of those people who I, I, I got a lot of people I'm connected to a lot of people now mm-hmm. so a lot of people ask me like man how do you stay so motivated how do you mm-hmm. keep going and whatever and part of it of course is the fact that I want to inspire and have a positive impact on other people mm-hmm. but also sometimes I tell people like yo like I know I'm gonna die Mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah. that, that might, that might sound, that might sound dark. That might sound sad or whatever, but it's like, look, I don't, I don't know. Like I'm from a very big family mm-hmm. and being from a very big family, like both, both immediate family and wider family. I mean, I've got 50 first cousins and wow, dozens of aunts and uncles and everything like that. And I'm on the younger end mm-hmm. of the thing, like in terms of my own generation anyway. And as a result of that, it means in the past 15 years, I've seen a lot of death.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. As everyone as everyone gets older, people get sick. People get into their eighties, and their nineties, and their hundreds. So, it's like for the past decade, I've seen a lot of people pass away. Right. I've seen my Mm -hmm. cousins' parents passing away. I've seen some many of my cousins pass away. Some of them younger than my age when they did.
0: You Mm -hmm. know, I've
1: had a cousin who had sickle cell anemia and stuff like that. So, I've seen that. And you know, then at my own friends, I've seen people pass away. And then people I don't even know, but you hear stories, you see Mm -hmm. things in the news, you see all this. And I'm just like, man, life is not, (laughs) you know, tomorrow is not, it's not promised today. Like hopefully we go on and live for a super duper long time, but it's not guaranteed. And so a lot of what drives me in everything, and even in the way I try to treat other people, is just having that knowledge somewhere in my head that, you know what, like it's not guaranteed, like stuff Mm -hmm. is not guaranteed. Um, And yeah, I I think it sounds, it sounds morbid, but it's actually like a very positive way to view the world.
0: Right. Right. And and I think
1: it makes you treat better people better too. You value people more. If you love people, you show them, you love them, you tell them you mm -hmm. love them because it's like, I don't know, you know, there's going to be one day you say, there's going to be one day, there's going to be one time where it's the last time you see that person or you talk to that person and you don't know, like you just don't know. So yeah, like, don't expect the worst of course not but just be aware and be conscious of it and i think if you are then it leads to a much better mindset and mentality
0: i agree i mean life is all about not playing small you know i took my my then 11 year old with me to my second talk and he thought it was the coolest experience ever he's kind of like a little old man in an 11-year-old's body. The things that that stimulate him and that that are of interest to him are probably not what is of interest to the average 11-year-old. And the conversations that we had out of that were so powerful, and I I kept emphasizing how important it is to not – not feel like you have limitations to, you know, do what you think you can do. And I said, you know, my body was not ready for me to do that talk, but my brain was. Mm -hmm. And that was so important. And I said, and I think it's even more important that that was part of my mental recovery was saying, okay, I'm still going to execute this talk. Even though I knew the curators thought I was bananas, they were very supportive, but they kept saying, we don't want you to compromise your recovery. Mm. I said, no, my surgeon has allowed me to fly with a a ruptured appendix, do my talk, come home and then have my surgery. And so, you know, really telling my children, you know, if you set your mind to something, you can absolutely do it. And that's how powerful that is. But I agree with you after many years of working in healthcare and seeing, you know, thousands and thousands of patients, you know, the one thing that I heard consistently, irrespective of age from people that were dying or were chronically terminally ill, as they would say, I would have lived more. I would have mm. feared less. I would mm. have done more. And so, you know, very much, even though I was caring for them, it didn't make as much of an impact until I got ill. But those influences of our family, I'm from a large Italian family, um, not nearly as many cousins as you <laughs> um, uh, but they do make a profound impact on you. As you see generations, you know, age and, and some people, you know, seem to embrace getting chronologically older, um, with more vigor than others. You know, some people live in a, in a world of pessimism. And so Mm. I always say to my boys, you know, I want to be an example of how to, you know, age in a way that, you know, you continue to embrace life and have energy and have a great quality of life because that's really what it's all about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think as long as you're, as long as you're getting better in some way, shape or form, then I don't think people should really fear aging. I mean, Mm -hmm. we, we live in a time where, I mean, I do think realistically, I think that's something that Women seem to fear more than men yeah. do, sort of on average, and I understand that to some degree. But I think as long as you're I think a lot of people fear aging because they're not really improving, mm-hmm. or they they don't feel like they're improving, right? So mm-hmm. they're kind of stuck in this one place. I mean, you go to school, maybe you go to university, you get a job, and then for some people, it kind of it almost stops there, right? Yes. They they stop reading books, they stop learning new things, they stop traveling or meeting new people, right? Like some people, I mean, they literally stop meeting new people pretty much once they hit, I don't know, their early twenties. And then from then on, it's just all the people they've known. I mean, I guess I'm quite grateful in a way with what I do that by definition, I'm constantly, literally every day, Mm -hmm. just meeting people, new people, offline, online, traveling around. And so with me, like, I don't know, every birthday or whatever, like I don't, I'm like, cool. Like, when I'm 50, like how much am I going to know? Do you know what right, I mean? Like, right. like, I, I look, I learned, yeah, like I look back 10 years ago and I think of how much, how much better mm-hmm. of a man I am now than I was 10 years ago. And I'm like, wow, like imagine the next 10, imagine yeah. the next 10, right? Because I'm going to keep getting better. Like I'm going mm-hmm. to keep training. I'm going to keep uh, my nutrition on point. I'm eventually going to yeah, have a, be married and have mm-hmm. a family and start that whole new process of now I'm an uncle to nine children. Wow! Um, but that started 13 years ago because I'm the, I'm also the youngest in my family. I'm okay. the youngest youngest of five. So I'd never seen other people really growing up mm-hmm. until I became an uncle when I was oh, 20. Fun. And then once I became an uncle, and then became an uncle eight more times. It's like oh cool! Like I've now I've now got like a new a new title and a new role mm-hmm. and. I'm now in that different position, so it's like in the future. Then I'll be a I'll be a father. Like right now, I'm sitting there taking notes. um, (laughs) You know,
0: smart to do that.
1: (laughs) But yeah, it's like so. I'm I'm excited about the future. I'm excited about getting older. It's not like maybe when I'm like Mm (laughs) seventy, and I'm like, oh, okay, my body is you know starting to (laughs) to like significantly deteriorate or something. Then I'd be a bit more worried. But even then, I mean, my my dad is seventy three and. Firstly, he doesn't look it, and no he doesn't he certainly does not act it. My dad is having a great time, so well, yeah, I, I like personally got, don't fear it too much, you know
0: yeah, it sounds like you've got a great family that's kind of role modeled behavior and I, I, I think that's really key, you know, being a lifelong learner, recognizing that you know when you leave university or leave graduate school or leave a job, I mean we will be. We should be learning our entire lives. I tell my boys that as much as they in their minds think I'm going to go to graduate school and then I don't have to ever be a student again. And I said, you will always be a student. I will always be a student. I'm always learning. I'm Uh a gigantic, you know, nerdy geeky person, but people sometimes make this assumption, they, they just make assumptions about people based on the way they look that, oh, you can't possibly be. Oh, yes, I can. Um, <laughs> if I showed you all the books I have on my floor that I'm in the midst of reading. But I agree with you that, you know, that role modeling behavior is so critical. I mean, I'm my mom's family, this very large Italian family, which is all about, you know, love and togetherness and family and my aunts, how they demonstrate that for the younger generations. There are 15 of us. Okay. So a little bit smaller than your, your cousin um, family, but, you know, for me, huge, huge emphasis on, you know, that connectedness and, you know, making sure that you're staying in touch with one another and, and supporting one another. And I think that's, you know, something that in many ways is lacking in this kind of over harried um, society that we're all residing in where people are disconnected. You know, it's, it's always something I'm, tweeting about is how disconnected people are and how do we get more connected? And it's like, Mm. get off electronics and get some sunshine and seems kind of trite, but it's so true. It's like, get back to basics, stop eating so much processed food and, you know, do things that are better for your body and your mind. You know, we're all turning, our brains are going to all turn to Swiss cheese because people are connected (laughs) to their iPads and watching Netflix, you know, on repeat 24 Mm. seven, um, And I'm not knocking that that can sometimes be something (laughs) that might be fun if you need to decompress. But the point being, that shouldn't be like where we get our information, Mm. you know, is the predominant source.
1: It's a strange oxymoron, isn't it? That we're Mm -hmm. simultaneously more connected than ever, ever, but also more disconnected disconnected than ever. Right. You you can like loneliness seems to be, I don't know about an all time high, but a past few decades high yet people are probably connected to and interacting with more other people mm-hmm. than before. But whether you're talking about friendships or romantic relationships mm-hmm. or you know parent-child relationships, all of that stuff, it's become, I mean, there's so many factors involved there, mm-hmm. but it's like some of those bonds have been weakened in some cases or broken in other cases, mm-hmm. despite the fact, yeah, we have got all this amazing technology and the fact that mm-hmm. we can do this podcast and we can communicate yeah. on twitter and i can be in the uk you can be in america and we're yeah. here talking in real time we can see each other
0: mm-hmm. it's
1: basically magic so when it comes to you know the internet and social media in particular firstly it's interesting cuz i think whether or not people realize it i think we're sort of the past 13 years we've basically been in one of the biggest sort of human experiments that's never been done before. And I don't think people really think about this. Like we don't really know what all the long-term effects of all of this stuff is. And thus far, thus far it looks pretty negative,
0: yeah, <laughs> at least yeah. for the
1: average person. It looks pretty negative if you, if you sort of look at the statistics. Um, and then, of course, you, you couple that with other things. Of course, we, we can talk more about exercise and diet mm-hmm. and nutrition and all that, which, again, you have more abundance than ever before. If you live in the Western world, I mean, you go to the supermarket. I was in the States last year and I was looking at just the amount of different types of milk. <laughs> I was in the supermarket and I was like, this is insane. There, mm, are, there are like yes. 40 kinds of milk. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, like this, is, this is ridiculous. Um, how can there be this many options? Like, They have milk from every, fruits and nuts and vegetables. I didn't even know you could mm-hmm. get milk from um, and then you had like your zero point five percent, one percent, one point five percent, two percent. I was just like, good grief! Lacto-free, mm-hmm. uh, soy milk, soy, cashew, almond, hazelnut. I was just like, this is this is, <laughs> this is crazy, yeah. Um, but yeah, given that it's just weird because you know, again, people are more sedentary mm-hmm. than before. People are making worse food choices mm-hmm. than before. Yeah, it's a weird one. I, I do think in the modern Western world. A lot of the problems that we have are now problems of abundance mm-hmm. rather than problems of lack. There are there are problems of lack that still exist, of course. Uh, you've still got homelessness issues in mm-hmm. cities. You've still got certain places where you know people are struggling to get enough, you know, to afford certain foods and whatever. Mm-hmm. But you know, and of course, uh, healthcare. But generally, if you look at the most of the problems, you look at what people are anxious about. You look at what people are depressed about or facing other mental health issues with a lot of it sort of stems in abundance it doesn't stem in lack it's you know even even people's relationships and stuff Mm -hmm. like I think a lot of that is just there's just there's too much out there like you know so people just kind of get lost in this matrix of just I don't know this swiping and swiping and swiping and going Mm -hmm. on this and going on that and connecting to this and connecting to that but then it's harder for two people to just kind of sit there and look each other in the eye and have a conversation. It's It's that
0: authentic connection that, you know, you kind of inferred earlier and, and, and obviously let's be honest, I'm in my forties. So I wasn't part of the Tinder experience, but uh, you know, I I do with fascination slash (laughs) concern, uh, (laughs) you know, genuinely both for both genders. Uh, I think it's this kind of instant gratification society that we're kind of creating where these get these dopamine hits. I'm sure it's no different than, when you're, you know, going through Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, mm. you know, whatever social media platform you're on, looking at Tinder, and you just start to wonder, are we are we actually rewiring our brains in such a way that we can't enjoy simple pleasures anymore? Because we want that instant dopamine hit. And we know dopamine is a neurotransmitter. We recognize the impact it has on our brain and it creates this kind of pleasure cycle. And so you know that's certainly one issue we could we could absolutely we, I could probably talk about that for forever because i just find it fascinating but then you know on the other on the flip side i did most of my medical training in baltimore and having been a suburban girl my entire you know existence living in baltimore was without a doubt one of the most impactful experiences of my entire life i lived there for 7 years i had never seen um, that degree of abject poverty, the homelessness issue, the addiction problems, teen pregnancy—you name a issue. At that time, it was the height of the HIV crisis, mm. and back then, people didn't live.
1: What what HIV. year? What sort of years was it? Was that?
0: Oh, a long time ago. So, 1997 okay. through <laughs> yeah, yeah. 2003, okay. which will give you an idea of uh, our age differences. But the point being, for me, it was one of the best things that could have ever happened to me because I feel like it—it it broke me of that kind of. You know, and I'm not saying it's just Americans, but a lot of Americans. I hadn't traveled a lot abroad by that at that point in my life. Hadn't really seen how other people lived. Want to talk about something that like brings you to your knees? Because I would go to work, or I would be in clinicals, or I'd be in my training. And, and our medical school campus was in the inner city. It wasn't in the, you know, the, the suburbs of of Baltimore. You know, they had what I would call a cop in a box, and so on every street corner there was a cop with a gun and literally in a box. And so they could monitor everything that was going on, but that was there because there was safety issues. Mm. And so they would make recommendations for students, most of which, including myself, were clueless. And I, of course, you know, being a rule follower, did everything they recommended and did fine. But people would sometimes wander off campus and they would get into trouble. But one of the things that struck me uh, was the first time I was in a a patient's home and they had, um, you know, very little access to healthy foods. And by this, I mean, you know, there, it was a, they, they participated with a program called WIC and so they would take their WIC coupons and what they would find is what was, what they could buy the most of for them for themselves and their family were these highly processed, highly addictive foods. Mm. And you start to kind of wonder and put all these things together that, you know, we, we create these programs to be helpful, but we are then creating a whole generation of people that are addicted to foods that are not benefiting them. I mean, it's nutrition, but it's like nutrition like substances. And so, um, you know, I I, I 100% agree that, you know, in in a society where there is an overabundance of, of stuff and food, there are so many people that are that really lack like the basic resources to be able to provide an environment that would be setting them up for any degree of success. And that for me is was something that was profoundly life altering. Mm. We talk about time periods in our lives where you just have snippets. And I always say I had, the, I had the greatest experiences being in Baltimore and I'm forever indebted to the patients and my fellow students and my professors. Um, but it also completely shifted my perspective, you know, having been that naive kind of suburban girl um, to then kind of evolve into a person who was highly philanthropic, very interested in giving back, recognizing that that's truly a path to happiness and wellness and, you know, um, you know, giving back is something that I I think a lot of people, maybe they don't grow up feeling that way, but they evolve as a human being and recognize that, you know, if you have abundance, meaning, you know, if you can sponsor a family or that's what I did, even though I was a poor student, I would sponsor a family every single, you know, Christmas time and buy jackets. And I would say to myself, can you imagine someone not being able to have enough money to buy their kid a winter coat? Like no one should go without a coat or a Mm. hat. Those kinds of things, but yeah, I, I agree. There's definitely this abundance, and then there's this lack, and and we need to be cognizant of it.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, and, and awesome. That's what what you what you did there, and what you say you do there. That's that's fantastic. I think more and more people need to, you know, do that kind of thing. Look out for other people. Give back, and you know, it, it's easy to think of how to. I think again, with the way society is right now, I think most people's minds are set on taking and receiving mm-hmm. rather than on giving. And mm-hmm. and the funny thing, I mean, of course, you're, you're an entrepreneur, so, so you'll understand this. And the funny thing with entrepreneurship and with business is even from a perspective of making money or doing well for yourself, you do that by providing value to other people mm-hmm. in various ways, whether that's... Uh, Through making a podcast people want to listen to or -hmm. writing a book people wish to read, giving a talk that people want to listen to, teaching people something that helps them, helping them with their nutrition, helping them with their fitness, helping them with their health. All of these are things that, you know, people will pay money for things that provide them with value. So I, you know, I, one big shift I had a couple of years ago was just that sort of realization. I I guess it's something I I understood implicitly, but Mm -hmm. even with my own music and stuff, like I did always want to make music that would inspire people, and they could take something positive from. But when I was younger, I mean, I started rapping when I was eighteen, and when I first kind of got into it, I was thinking like, you know, it was it was a more me-centric view. Mm-hmm. It was like, okay, I want to do this because I want to get this, or I want that, I want this. Whereas now, I think from a perspective, of, oh, okay, this is my skill set; these mm-hmm. are my this is my expertise. These are the things I have to offer the world. Okay. What can I do to help people in this regard? I mean, that, that's why I wrote, I wrote and released my fitness book, strong advice last year. I did, at the beginning of the year. I had no plans to write a book, but I was like, you know what? I'm a, I'm an expert at this. Why don't I create something? Why don't I take all this knowledge I've gained over the past 17 years and just put something out that will help people reach their goals. I've done it for myself. I used to be overweight and I've gone through this journey. So why don't I just do that? And with everything I do now, that's kind of where my head is at. I'm always kind of thinking, hmm, okay, what what, what else can I offer people? What, mm-hmm. what else can I give people? How can I do this better? How can I do that better? And lo and behold, by shifting that mindset, it turns out that even from a kind of business or a career standpoint, things started going way better. The more people you can help, then the more it also helps you. That shouldn't necessarily be the Core reason you do it, but it's just a—it's a total win-win, and it seems a lot of people don't. I mean, you, you can tell that a lot of people don't really understand that because mm-hmm. you—you have also got this mentality a lot of people have where they—they they feel you know that envy or jealousy. They'll see someone who's uh, like at the moment everyone's gunning for the billionaires right now, right? So it's <laughs> like ah, oh, these billionaires, these billionaires, yeah. and it's like you're like I—I I, I tweeted about this the other day. It's like you're using your um, iPhone created by a billionaire. Mm-hmm. On an operating system created by a billionaire, on a social media platform created by a billionaire, to complain about billionaires, whilst probably like sipping your drink that's made by a billionaire. Right. Exactly. No. <laughs> so, so I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, if you if you were serious, like, why don't you just boycott all these right,
0: right? But companies? they will
1: And it's like, no. And it's yeah. like, well, those people became billionaires by offering something that millions, if not billions, mm-hmm. of people want and use. So right. if you kind of reframe it that way, rather than thinking that they just ran around robbing everybody, which mm-hmm. they didn't do, then you'll think, oh, actually, I can take a lesson from that. Correct. And yeah. So um, let's talk a little bit more about, um, about nutrition because I know that's, that's certainly within, um, I know that that's kind of your, one of your main <laughs> wheelhouses right there. So what, let, 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 hmm, let, me, let me frame it this way. What is the one thing or you can give me more than one.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, What's the one thing about nutrition that most people get wrong or most people should know but don't know?
0: Mm, I could go a couple different directions, but I I think the the thing that has become most apparent to me over the last 20 years is that in our kind of westernized societies, we think of food as comfort and not as fuel. Mm -hmm. And that distinction is so critical for so many reasons, because when we think of food as fuel, I know it's not sexy, you know people you know it's a, it's a means to an end. I have to sit down and I have to eat a meal, I intermittent fast, and I have two meals during my day, but it's a means to an end, it's something I do. I sit down, I enjoy my meal i'm relaxed I'm in a you know relaxed state, but what most people do is they've been conditioned to crave foods when they're not feeling great, whether it's emotional or physical. And so this again gets into this highly addictive, highly processed, highly excited toxin kind of foods. And so it sets up you know this unfortunate relationship with food where it's, not, it's no longer about fuel, it's about comfort. And that's a really important distinction that I think most people don't make, or they will tell me, well, I'm carb addicted and that's just the way things are. And I was like, that's a limiting belief and that's a whole other issue. Um, But I would say that's probably the first, the the biggest issue, because if I can get someone to believe food is fuel, Mm. they are going to, they are going to consume different types of food and they're going to make better food choices. Whereas if someone says, I had a really bad day at work and I downed a gallon of ice cream and ate a a whole pizza and I'm like, and then you're going to feel horrible afterwards. Um, Not to mention, you know, putting carbohydrates and fats together is, you know, like the perfect way. It's like the perfect storm to be like super, super addictive. And then your brain doesn't give the proper cues that your body is full and therefore it just starts this cycle of, I then want to have 10 chocolate bars and I then want to have another gallon of ice cream. And so I think that's probably where I start with most people. And it's really, you know, the other, the other big issue is again, because of this, you know, highly stimulated environment that we live in, we don't really sit down for our meals. Like when I travel to Europe and I think of Spain in particular, people have these long, long meals and it's wonderful and people enjoy their food and they savor it. And we have gotten so far away from not only cooking our own meals, but savoring, enjoying, and just allowing ourselves to spend an hour eating a meal. Whereas, Mm. you know, most Americans, they want to get in and they want to get out. I just snapped my fingers. Um, You know, they want to sit down at a restaurant. They want the waiter to come over immediately. They want to get their food in 10 minutes. They want to have their check in and, you know, under an hour. Mm. Um, And so we just have a different relationship with food. And, And one important distinction is you cannot be stressed, and so stressed is where most of us are eating. We're in our cars, we're yelling at our kids, we're on the go, we're having an argument with someone that we work with, and we're eating food. And if you're stressed, your body can't digest. Um, you know, you have two major, you know, nervous systems: parasympathetic and sympathetic. And so you can't be in the rest and repose side of your body if you're stressed and arguing. And so I remind people that you really do need to sit down and not be distracted by technology and not be, you know, doing all the things I mentioned, being in your car or, you know, standing up and eating at work, which I was guilty of a few years ago (laughs) out of necessity. But the point being, you can't properly digest your food. And so you have all these people that are taking reflux medications and, you know, they're bloated all the time. And I'm like, well, you ate a a meal that should have been eaten over 20 minutes in five, and you're eating a lot of crap. And so this is, you know, it just starts up this kind of very circuitous, uh, situation. So I'd say those are a couple of like the main things that I see that are of huge concern. And a lot of the work that I do is just teaching like really basic stuff to people. And then when they start, you know, looking at food differently and they, they're they satiated and they're, you know, taking more than five minutes to eat a meal, they suddenly start to feel a whole lot better. And then that it's like the domino effect. Then you yeah, can yeah. really start doing a lot of fine tuning.
1: And it, it's amazing how um, it it's like magic to people, isn't it?
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, because- yeah.
1: For for people who are you know in the fitness world or nutrition world in any way or who have you know got a, I don't know, say a decade plus experience mm-hmm. in that regard, there's so much stuff both when it comes to the gym and when it comes to nutrition mm-hmm. that seems so obvious, right to us, right? So I, I I get people you know asking me advice on you know fat loss or building muscle or whatever, mm-hmm. and sometimes I'll tell them something and it's like it just blows right. their mind yeah. like, and I'm like. Oh gosh. And I, I, I was, because it's easy to forget, you know, I, I, I start, I started going to the gym when I was like 15, you that's know? Awesome. Um, yeah. I, I started, uh, I used to play rugby. Oh.
0: Oh, so, and that's a brutal sport.
1: Yeah. So, so I started training primarily to mm-hmm. get bigger and stronger for rugby. And I used to just, um, I used to get all my info from the bodybuilding magazines mm-hmm. and just uh, go through and try to try to mimic the workouts. And I used to eat way too much food just in, yeah. in general, right? I was on that, oh gosh, if I don't eat protein for two hours, I'm going to go catabolic right. and right. all the muscles are going to fall off. High. I weighed more when I was 15 than I weigh now.
0: That's amazing.
1: And that's, that's how much I was eating. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it, I mean, it's amazing because there's a lot of dogma that people don't want to let go of. And that's a lot of the work that I do is saying to people, it's okay mm-hmm. if you don't eat breakfast. It's yeah. okay if you're not eating every two hours. And, and and I don't in fact want you to eat every two hours because <laughs> the more you the more frequently you eat, the more insulin you secrete. And yeah. the more insulin you secrete, the more likely you are to pack on weight. And so, you know, trying to explain to to people, but yeah, but you, you have evolved much like I have evolved. Mm-hmm. Like I, I said to someone the other day, I found my happy place. Like I do really well eating the way that I do. And I know I recognize for a lot of other people that would seem weird, but it works for me and I'm happy. And really that's yeah. what it comes down to is finding what works for you and your body and your lifestyle and doesn't seem to be too restrictive, which... You know, it's all relative, um, but I agree that you know we we all try to evolve and change and and try to find the things that work best for our bodies and and you know those that don't. Like I, I say to people all the time, I'm like I don't do really well doing a lot of carbs, but for other people, they may do may have a higher carb tolerance, but that's okay, right? And you're you're a young man <laughs> and you're 30, so you you have a you have more of a threshold. Whereas women, unfortunately, as we get older, we have to be like more carb focused, meaning. You know, we just can't eat as much. We want high quality, but not like you're going to have a sweet potato, but you're not going to have a pound of French fries. So it's mm. all about like really thinking through those decisions it can make a big impact.
1: Yeah. I mean, there was something you said there earlier, which again is, is interesting. It comes around to the sort of wider modern society thing we were talking about before. And this is the fact that people don't need to work anywhere near as much as people had to Correct. work in the past. Yeah. Yet it seems like every year people think they're getting busier
0: mm-hmm. and
1: busier. Where do you think that stems from? Why, why is everybody in a rush? Why does everyone seem so busy when really we don't need to work as much as we did before and that work is not even as strenuous?
0: Well, I think it's probably two factors. I think there are people who are unhappy in their personal lives and they use work as an excuse. I do think when I reflect back to how my parents, you know, how I, I viewed them growing up, there were no cell phones, mm. there were no laptops, where there were their were big clunky laptops. Um, people didn't have cell phones, uh, or if they did, they were big clunky cell phones and you had to be very special to have a cell phone. And so, and, and there wasn't this email pressure. So I think people feel a lot of pressure about being, it's like, again, it's that duality of being connected versus not being connected. People feel obligated to check their phone, check their email. Um, be hyper-connected even when they're on vacation. Whereas before people, you know, you get on a plane, there was no internet, there was Mm. no cell phone, there was no social media. So people really could go off the grid and they could enjoy themselves. And so I think it's a twofold issue. Obviously one of concern, but there are also, the third is there are people who like to say they're busy because it makes them feel important.
1: Mm. Yeah, that's very true. I I I know a few of those.
0: (laughs) That's another whole aspect, but I think you know, maybe being busy or the concept of being busy was attractive at a different stage in my life. Whereas now I'm like, no, no, it's really more important for me to disconnect. Like I genuinely need to do more of that and less busyness, like Mm -hmm. work will still be there. I mean, it was something, a, a cardiologist I worked with, a female cardiologist who was an incredible human being. And she said, the one thing I want you to understand, there will always be more sick people that will never go away. But yeah. you have to leave and go home to your family, so at, you know x time you get in your car, you drive home, and you disconnect mm. and I, that has always really resonated with me now, my family, as an entrepreneur, might tell me that I, I work a lot, but I try to try, try to keep it you know within time constraints, same thing with social media I mean I think that 's really critical i 'm not sure if you do that. Um, although you seem to always be, you're very you know, <laughs> present, which I think is a wonderful thing is that yeah. you're very connected. But the point being that we have to set up, you know, limit we have to like provide some boundaries for our own sanity for sure. Oh, certainly.
1: Certainly. Yeah. With social media in general, I mean, I've, I've been through lots of waves on them. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I've been on, I was one of the first people on Facebook. I've been on Facebook since 2004.
0: Wow. Um,
1: yeah. <laughs> so That's impressive. My, yeah. Well, my, my university was the first one in the UK that it was opened up to. So this is really? before Facebook was public. Yeah. So I've been on Facebook for a long time. Before that, I was, uh, well, at the same time, I was on uh, MySpace. Mm-hmm. I used to have a big MySpace. I used to have a really big MySpace following, actually. <laughs> um, and then yeah. Bebo. And then I've been on YouTube since, I've had an account since 2006, but I wasn't always uploading. And then, so all of them, Twitter, I've been on since 2009. Like I get oh. people that are like, "Man, how are you so good at Twitter?" I'm like, "Dude, I've been on this I thing for <laughs> <it>. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Like I've been on this thing for so long that I am like psychologically connected to it. I, yeah. I know what people react to and how yeah. to do things. And yeah, it's, it's been interesting sort of seeing that evolution. But um, I do wonder, I mean, as someone who looks into the future a lot, I mean, I don't know if you ever do this, but when you sort of look into the future, as, especially as a parent, I guess, mm-hmm. as someone who's got two sons, right?
0: Two sons, yeah. Yeah,
1: two sons. I mean, what are you, what are you optimistic about, and what are you worried about? I guess on on all of these different levels, um, from from health, both physical and mental, to just I guess where where the world is going. Yeah.
0: What do you, what do you um, feel
1: good about? What do you feel worried about?
0: Oh uh, well, I, I because I have boys, in in some ways, I'm grateful because I. I do think it's harder for young women uh, to see, you know, for example, like Instagram where everything's got 15 filters and they think someone really looks like that photo. I think that there, it's a blessing and a curse. You know, I think it's a part of our culture. I think that it's unrealistic to believe that it won't be important to uh, younger generations. I think in some ways it's it's great that they have the ability to be so connected with one another in, in terms of if they want to learn something or if they want to meet someone that lives in another country, they can do so much like we are. You know, yeah. we're, we're connecting and that's a positive thing. The things that I, I get concerned about is when I see uh, my oldest is 14, really nice group of friends, but when they come over and I go downstairs because I'm one of those moms that just I will make sure I just show up and I'm, I'm pretty tiny so I can go down the stairs and be pretty <laughs> quiet. Um, and I keep reminding my husband, I'm like, this will, this will be good for us for many years to come but when they're downstairs and they're hanging out mm-hmm. and I go down there and it makes me sad when I see all of them all looking at their phones instead of mm-hmm. talking to one another. And sometimes they're messaging one another in the same room. I'm like, what the heck is that? Uh, <laughs> that and is so awesome. I'm that mom that's like, what are you guys doing? Like, go back to watching that movie or whatever game you're playing. Just go do that and just stop being so disconnected. So it, so my concern is twofold. I think that, you know, it has some, some wonderful attributes. I think that it'll be interesting to see how the technology piece evolves and shifts. Like I have a child who codes. Okay. And so it'll be interesting to see how that evolves. And just because he's, he started to talk to me a little bit about the technology and how he perceives that it could be more beneficial or helpful. Um, but it's always goes back to, you know, I worry more when they're dating, like, you know, if this Tinder environment is still really, um, Tinder or Bumble or whatever these, these things are called. Um, clearly I'm dating myself because I, I just know the basics, but <laughs> this kind of disposable society or this disposableness or this, you know, that's a real person that you just swiped over or swipe, mm-hmm. I don't even know mm-hmm. the terminology, but there that's a real person that you have disregarded or yeah. a real person that you're connecting with. And, and I think that this transactional kind of mindset is something that's of great concern to me. So I, I think about it more from the the mom of um, you know, thinking about the dating, you know, are, are you are you all going to actually sit in a room and have a conversation, or do you just not even? You, you've lost the visual cues, the social cues, the things that I grew up with, and even I'm sure you did as well. Mm. That this generation is so disconnected from real communication that. You know, how are they going to adapt and thrive? So those, that's kind of where I come from. I'm curious to to think, since, especially because you've been in the social media realm for such a long period of time, have there been any major surprises for you? Anything that's, you know, either been positive or negative that you was, was unexpected?
1: Wow, that's a good question. I mean, what's interesting is that I have seen how they have engineered and changed all of these aforementioned platforms over time
0: mm-hmm.
1: to make them more addictive. So most people don't know this. I mean, Facebook in 2004 was like, a, let's, let's use Facebook. It was a totally different beast. Mm-hmm. Right? There was no newsfeed. Yeah. You couldn't make status updates. All it really was, was each person had a profile. So it was your, your profile photo. You could upload photos. You could comment on photos. There were no likes. You mm-hmm. couldn't like things. There were no metrics. So it wasn't like you could see how many likes mm-hmm. something has or whatever. There's no news feed. There's no status updates. So it wasn't, and also it wasn't mobile that mm-hmm. 's that's, that's yep. the big one right it wasn 't mobile. If you wanted to go on Facebook, you had to go to a desktop or a laptop mm-hmm. and use it there you, you weren 't walking around with it in your pocket all day getting notifications and whatever. So it was cool. It was this fun thing that you could use to connect with people or if you were organizing a university party. Mm-hmm. I used to use it for my music right If I had a gig, oh, I could cool. invite because uh, you it did have the events yeah. so, you could people, <laughs> so you could invite people to the gig and everything and then post up some photos so that was that was cool but over time it's like i've seen them in the last 15 years just keep Mm -hmm. tweaking it and engineering it to make it more and more addictive so people spend more time on the platform Mm -hmm. introducing likes introducing the news feed introducing status updates adding some features from things like youtube and snapchat and twitter Mm -hmm. and so i've seen that happen very similar has happened with youtube um Twitter is the one that's actually stayed the most similar. The biggest change was when they, yeah, the biggest (laughs) change was when they doubled the character limit.
0: Okay. And I think
1: that was a great change. Yeah. Um, But besides that, Twitter hasn't really changed so much. Like they haven't engineered it as hard as the others. The the like feature, I remember when they brought in the likes. Um, But apart from that, um, it's kind of stayed the same. So that, that has been interesting for me to see that, process and, and see how intentional it is mm-hmm. shall I say because I think some people just think oh it's it's just like that it's always been like that And I'm like no like they've they've altered this over time based on yeah. all of the billions of users feedback they're 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 constantly tweaking their algorithms so you do stay really really hooked to this thing and they know what you like so if I log into Instagram or my girlfriend logs into Instagram or you log into Instagram, mm-hmm. what you see is, is different. If you go on the discover tab, it, it's different. It, it knows mm-hmm. what you're interested in. It knows what kind of stuff will. So all of that's been really interesting for me. And then um, outside of the world of social media, but I guess somewhat connected, and this reminds me of what you were just saying with that story mm-hmm. with your sons and their friends, is, um, I mean, when I was growing up, a lot of myself and a lot of my friends, we were addicted to video games. Sure. But one of the key differences that's happened with video games, is um, the multiplayer mode. So mm-hmm. when I used to play multiplayer games, we'd all be in the same room. Mm-hmm. So you're all there, you know. You're there with your free three friends, and your Nintendo 64, and you're all, you know, you've got the split screen, mm-hmm. and you're still socially interacting yeah. in the real world. Mm-hmm. Whereas now, when people play multiplayer games, they're sitting in a room like this with a headset yeah. on, yeah, and they they're they're by themselves, yeah, and they might be chatting with people. Online or whatever, they're technically playing with other people, but they can't see them. Yeah, there's not that social interaction. You're not eating popcorn together and like talking smack with each other when you, (laughs) you you, you know. So that whole aspect of it has been largely removed. Lots of games now don't have any local multiplayer modes. So even Mm. within the world of video games, it's like even that has changed to become more anti-social. And that's a good point. And again, like I don't think most people kind of are aware of that especially, you know, realistically, especially like older people, because then they might not be playing the games themselves. Right. But as someone who's kind of in his, I'm 33. So I've kind of really seen, I've been right in the, in the middle yeah. of that transition. Yeah. I mean, I'm very internet and technology savvy mm-hmm. myself, but I do also remember the pre-smartphone, pre-social yeah. media, yeah. even pre-internet days like it, it kind of hit right at that at that time in terms of my age to me social media especially it's just like it's a tool mm-hmm. it's really a tool it's um I think most people use it to their detriment if I'm being totally honest I think most no, I, people I would agree with that. yeah I think for most people it's a net negative I think if you harness it well and you use it well then it's incredible mm-hmm. right you, you can do things on it like even just through Twitter, the past, even just the past year, the stuff I've done through that platform and the, the people I've met, the opportunities I've had on every level, and as well as translating them into the real world, mm-hmm. it's been, has been totally incredible. I could not have done that without Twitter. We wouldn't know who each other were without Correct. Twitter and all this. So depending on who you follow and what you choose to put out and also mm-hmm. what you choose to consume you can let it drive you totally crazy.
0: <laughs> right, right. Well, it's interesting. Someone did gonna... a post this morning about being triggered and I just, I, I i did a post talking about, you were tweeting about the Golden Globes and so I, I listened to Ricky Gervais' oh, yeah. you know, <laughs> opening, which was fascinating on many levels. And then someone tweeted about the food and it was all plant-based and I have strong opinions about that stuff. And so I tweeted something and then like three people messaged me who were like hurt. They're like, oh. Human beings are not meant to eat meat. I was like, "Oh boy, Uh Uh (laughs) uh-oh." I was like, "I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's late (laughs) enough in the morning for me to have this discussion." Um, And then they were concerned that somehow they had hurt my feelings, and I was like, uh, "I don't really. You have to understand. I've got a pretty thick skin. I worked in Mm. ER medicine and cardiology, got yelled at regularly, and it takes a lot to get me upset. No, that does not upset me. But the fact that there are people who get triggered by almost everything, and I tell people." if you are triggered by the people you are following, you are following the wrong person. And mm-hmm. I'm not talking about someone disagreeing with an opinion on something, which I think is completely fine as long as people are respectful. But beyond that, um, I'm like, you're obviously following the wrong people. Cause I love Twitter um, it is it's probably my only social media platform I'm enjoying these days but <laughs> because I genuinely enjoy what people are putting out. And yeah. like you said, um, it's all about harnessing it for the good mm-hmm. and not the evil and I have no comparisonitis. I'm a mindset of abundance. I'm all awesome. about cheering for my friends, but I agree with you that it can be profoundly powerful. Like I never mm-hmm. thought I would write a book last year. And I did with someone that I met, um, you know, through Twitter uh, who, you know, I always say is like the consummate alpha dude on, on Twitter, which is great. Um, get to get refreshing opinions from him on many things. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it you if you use it for good and not evil, as I yeah. say, then yeah. it can be You know, it can be really beneficial and and enjoyable, but if you do the opposite, then you can end up being, you know, depressed and stressed and,
1: you know. Absolutely. You really do have to be careful. And and, and both of those things can happen in in the course of the same day. I've had days Mm -hmm. where it's like, I don't know, I'm having like a a good Twitter day (laughs) and then like... (laughs) I, I myself will. I don't know. I'll, I'll. I'll kind of go off course a little bit, mm-hmm. and then the whole thing just becomes a, a war zone for the next oh, yeah. 48 hours or whatever. Like I do normally, cause it myself. Yeah, I don't know. It, it, and it's also just an interesting from a psychological perspective. Yes. But yes. um, I think the I think the most important thing with with all of what we're saying here is the I think as long as people are able to not lose the real world. Mm-hmm. abilities to to socialize and to talk and to look people in the eye and to establish relationships whether that's just friendships or whether that's a guy being able to walk up to a girl he's attracted to and mm-hmm. talk to her or vice versa like that's the stuff that like I'm not you know I have I have days where I look like I'm just sitting there you know swiping on my phone and doing whatever but as soon as someone talks to me in the real world I'm not there on my phone. I never, I make a point of not swiping through my phone when I'm talking to people. I will be looking Mm -hmm. at you in the eye and we'll Mm -hmm. be having a conversation and I'm forgetting about that other side of thing. But we're now at a stage where especially that younger generation, Mm -hmm. some of them can't do that, right? They've gotten so used to the phone or the internet being the primary primary, Mm -hmm. uh, mode of communication rather than the secondary one. And they haven't really developed those social skills and ability to talk to people and everything like that. I mean, I've noticed this as well with my music because I used to go out on, uh, I used to go out and promote and sell my music in the street Mm -hmm. and then I eventually moved into shopping malls. Mm -hmm. So I've met hundreds of thousands of people, just members of the public, just out and about promoting my music. And there was a shift, right? I first started doing that when my first album came out in 2006. And this, of course, was Mm pre-smartphone and mostly pre-social media and- yeah, it was it was kind of easier to talk to people. Sure. Whereas in sort of 2017 and 2018 and whatever, I'd be talking to people and like they're not even looking at me.
0: Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah, they're talking to someone they're and they're distracted. they're in a, they're distracted. They're in a different world, or or sometimes they're literally genuinely afraid to make eye contact, especially mm-hmm. the teenagers. Like you're talking to them and they're kind of like they're not looking at you. They're sort right. of like looking down to the side or mm-hmm. whatever, and it's just really socially awkward. Yeah. And that was a relatively new trend that I started sort of noticing. And I was like, "Hmm, this is a, uh, this stuff is affecting people's real world behavior. Yeah.
0: And yeah. think about the impact that has on, you know, when they get out of college, if they go to college or when they get their first job, I mean, the, the net impact when they're communicating with anyone can be, you know, greatly lessened. I know that, uh, you know, a peer asked me, you know, do you check your phone when you're working during the day and i said well it's different i'm i'm no longer like in a hospital seeing patients but i can imagine that for you know some of the younger generations that desire to be connected they probably feel like some i'm sure there's some some psychological withdrawal and mm. you know feeling despondent and So these are real problems that we will struggle with, or just even watching, like I'm driving through my neighborhood, lots of big, you know, SUVs, lots of kids. Mm -hmm. And I see women that are adults, grown adults, my same age, same Mm -hmm. peers, and they're on their, in their big SUVs, you know, this is the United States, big SUV, and they're looking at their phone. And I'm like, well, what kind of example are you setting for your kids? Mm -hmm. That's a whole separate issue. But I'm like, it's a great way to get yourself into a car accident. But definitely challenging for sure.
1: Yeah. The, the law in the U S tolerates that way more than they do in the UK. I noticed that in the they're UK not supposed to, yeah. In the UK, that's uh, you will get pulled over and fined.
0: They, my kids laugh. Cause they're like, my mom will pull over into a parking lot <laughs> to send a text. I'm like, that's right. Cause if I'm not doing voice <laughs> to text or if I'm in my earbuds and yeah. I'm like, no way I might text me while I'm driving. I'm like, there's yeah. just too many things that can go wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And
1: uh, I have a family member who was killed by someone who was texting mm-hmm. while driving.
0: I'm so sorry. So That's tragic
1: for me, it's like an extra, like mm-hmm. when I see people doing that, I'm like, like right. you know, it's, it's, it's like someone doing that was yeah. the reason why one of my cousins is no longer here. Yeah. So like, don't, you know, uh, it's not mm-hmm. a joke. It's like drunk driving and stuff. It's like, whatever it is, mm-hmm. it's like, it, it's always okay until something goes wrong. Right
0: correct well and it's interesting because my youngest got a cell phone for christmas he's 12. and so you know it's interesting now that everyone in our home has cell phones and, and kind of navigating those things. What I find interesting and tying it back to social media is what he's most embarrassed by is that some of his buddies follow me on Instagram. So he, <laughs> went into, he went into my phone the other day and he said, mom, I need to change your settings on Instagram. And oh I was gosh. like, why? And he said, because so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so can see your Insta stories. And it's so embarrassing
1: oh, because yeah. they follow
0: you. So they know what we ate for dinner. So and then funny. you're you know, like, I'm, and I'm very respectful of my kids. I mean, I don't yeah, put yeah. them on social media unless they have their permission, but yeah, yeah. all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, my mother's so embarrassing because she, you know, put what we, <laughs> yeah, he changed all the settings. So his buddies can't see any of my Insta stories. That's
1: which, so funny. I've I never even, I've never even thought of that aspect of it.
0: Yeah. 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 The embarrassment factor. Like <laughs> your parent, your parent has a social media presence. It's like, oh my God, you're so embarrassing. I'm like, sorry. That's <laughs> it's so just funny. the way it is. That's so funny.
1: So what have you got? um, What have you got happening this year? You got any big um, plans or projects for 2020?
0: Yeah, I mean, a couple things. Um, Primal Man uh, and I are going to get a print book out on primal eating and possibly do some videos connected to that. So that's one. Um, I'm a spokesperson for a company called New Age. So I'm going to be doing some speaking events for them, which is really kind of incredibly cool. Again, one of those things that you know, how a talk can change so much for you, but yeah, just got group programs. I'm kind of scaling back on my one-on-one work so that I can do more traveling, but, um, joined a big mastermind at the end of last year. And that was a good decision for me business wise. So, yeah, all sorts of good things. Um, and you know, the, the, the potential for me writing my own book has come up and I'm still kind of tossing that around in my head. I haven't decided if it's the right time to do that.
1: Mm. Awesome. And, uh, where can people find and follow you online?
0: Yeah. So www.cynthiathurlow.com is my website. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I am on YouTube and and maybe you can give me some tips on how to to grow that following because I haven't invested a lot of time and effort in it yet, but that's changing. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm kind of all over the place, but it's Cynthia Thurlow um, on all those platforms. Awesome.
1: Cynthia, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been great to speak with you. My pleasure. The man sick with the slang, sick and obsessed for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand, stuck in obsessed for pain. I do not front, I do not scam. Put some respect on my name. Sick like a pain, clickin' a pain. Y'all gon' remember the name. Y'all gon' remember the name. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts.